This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss prostate health with naturopath Dr. Ludo Brunel, N.D. We'll learn how to prioritize cancer prevention with holistic nutritionist Katrina Foe. We'll discover new research into heart health with researcher Dr. Andreas Kumar. And lastly, we'll find out about pronoun how-tos with gender equality edutainer Lane. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. In a randomized controlled clinical trial of adults with moderate to severe depression, those who participated in heated yoga sessions experienced significantly greater reductions in depressive symptoms compared with the control group. The results of the trial, which were published in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry, indicate that heated yoga could be a viable treatment option for patients with depression. For the first time, a Cornell University-led study in rats teased apart the role of the hippocampus in two functions of memory, one that remembers associations between time, place, and what one did, and another that allows one to predict or plan future actions based on past experiences. The breakthrough reveals that these two memory tasks, both coded in the hippocampus, can be separated. The finding has important implications for one-day treating memory and learning issues found in dementia and Alzheimer's disease. When you're under stress, your brain may release its own cannabinoid molecules to calm you down, activating the same brain receptors as THC derived from cannabis plants. But the brain activity patterns and neural circuits that are regulated by these brain-derived cannabinoid molecules were not well known. A new Northwestern medicine study in mice has discovered that a key emotional brain center, the amygdala, releases endogenous, the body's own, cannabinoid molecules under stress. And these molecules dampen the incoming stress alarm from the hippocampus, a memory and emotion center in the brain. These results provide more support for the hypothesis that these endogenous cannabinoid molecules are the body's natural coping response to stress. I'll be joined by Ludo Burnell in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Dr. Ludo Brunel is a naturopathic physician trained at the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto. Prior to his training as a doctor, he studied human nutrition at McGill University in Montreal. Dr. Brunel has spent the last 17 years helping patients optimize their health through better lifestyle and dietary supplementation. His passion remains educating the public, his patients, and colleagues, and he's been a guest on the show many times. Welcome back, Ludo. How are you doing, man? 
I'm great. Thanks, Jamie. It's my pleasure to be on the show. Very excited about the topic today. It'll be very informative for the people that are listening. Yes, for men and, and for people who know men, because today we're going to be talking about prostate health. So what role does the prostate play in men's health? So the prostate is a small gland. It's, it's about the size of a walnut, um, and it's located right below the bladder and around the tube that carries urine from the bladder, which is, which is called the urethra. It plays a really important role in reproductive health. One of its main functions is that it produces a fluid, and that fluid mixes with sperm, and it helps to protect sperm. It also um, helps them survive and move more effectively to reach, to reach the egg. Um, the prostate is also, also contains some smooth muscles, and those muscles contract during sexual activity, and it assists the process of ejaculation and the release of sperm. So in essence, the prostate gland contributes to the overall function of the male reproductive system by producing this special fluid that supports sperm and facilitates their release during reproduction. Okay, can you, uh, there's a term that is often referred to when we're talking about prostate health, and that is BPH. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so BPH stands for benign prostate hyperplasia. Um, it's quite a common condition. It's, I see it all the time in my practice. Essentially, as men age, the cells within the prostate, they can start to grow and multiply. This happens throughout our lifespan, but as men age, especially after the sixth decade of life, sometimes there becomes an imbalance. Essentially, uh, the cells divide more quickly than they die off, and that's what's called hyperplasia. The prostate gland doesn't really get larger because the cells themselves get bigger, but rather more and more cells accumulate. So it's kind of like a, a room where there's always more people coming in than out, eventually you know, that gets crammed in there. Okay, so th- in other words, your prostate becomes more dense? Is that what you're saying? Or does it actually increase? Does it have the capacity it, to expand as well? It expands in size, and that's where some of the problems occur. So gradual growth of the prostate can advance from the size of a walnut when men are young in their 20s, and then we'll see it increase to the size of an apricot, often in the 40s, and a large kiwi in the 60s decade onward and men over the age of 85 are the ones that tend to have the most problem and it's one of the age um, groups that's growing the quickest in Canada and right now uh, Statistics Canada estimates that about 3.7 million men are affected by BPH in Canada. Okay so that's a big number. I guess the question then is why do we care like what what happens when your prostate gets larger what's the effect? Well as the prostate gets bigger, of course, it's way more likely to start pressing against the urethra, um, and it also can press against the bladder, and then we can have some, we can start developing some urinary symptoms because it starts to restrict the flow of urine, but it also prevents the full emptying of the bladder. So typically, the symptoms will be increased frequency of urination, weak stream, incomplete voiding. Uh, hard to start peeing or stop. Um, and of course, one of the most annoying, which is usually what brings patients, is nocturia. So essentially, you wake up at time, often at night to use the bathroom and go pee. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not there yet. This might be too much information. We'll, we'll let. We'll, I'll figure out if that's true. If we get too many comments and emails, but like, I'm I'm at the stage where you know. Pretty much every night, I'm going to wake up and have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. But that's not exactly what we're talking about. This is more frequent than, than once, so, right? So we usually say if you wake up once or twice a night, pretty normal. Yeah. Um, but you know, I see men sometimes they're up every hour, every two hour, and it becomes a real problem. They they, they they're tired, they're exhausted, their partners um, starts to interfere with their sleep as well. So everybody gets grumpy, and it's and, and sleep deprivation becomes a real issue. There can be other problems. Um, obviously, one of, one of the ones that I often see is that because the prostate starts pushing on the bladder and the bladder can't empty fully, uh, urinary tract infections or bladder infections can also st- start to occur. So, is, is this going to happen to all men or are there particular risk factors that we should look to? Yeah, as with most conditions, there's definitely some risk factors. So, of course, if you have a family history of uh, BPH, benign prostatic hyperplasia, then your risk increases. Hormonal imbalances um, can also play a significant role. The effect of testosterone on the prostate is largely what causes that cell division. And then um, being obese and uh, having a sedentary lifestyle or an unhealthy diet are all contributing factors and really increase the risk. Okay, so when you when you talk about testosterone, is it a function of having too much testosterone or not enough testosterone that, that is the risk factor? It's it's a bit complex. It's it's about the metabolites, but essentially testosterone is an anabolic, right? It makes things grow, um, and so. The risk is that it causes the prostate to become larger faster than it should. And so, yes, too much exposure to testosterone can be a problem. But it's interesting that uh, this tends to occur as we get older, because my understanding is testosterone actually tapers off as we get older, unless we're taking steps to, to avoid that. You're totally correct. And, and you know, we feel if we look at on an evolutionary perspective, likely the reason why some of the testosterone decreases we age is to protect us from things like prostate cancer and other issues. But certainly testosterone is very important. I'm not minimizing the importance of testosterone for men, but um, too much of it is usually what can lead to some problems with the prostate. Okay, so it seems like it would be pretty important for for men to undergo proper testing to determine whether or not they have BPH. Do you agree with that? And, and if so, what, let's let's discuss that. Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, as soon as there's a problem with the prostate, especially with BPH, the prostate is bigger. Um, we want to make sure that we are dealing with BPH and not something more serious, namely prostate cancer, because a lot of the symptoms are the same. Hmm. And so uh, it's important to make sure that what we're truly dealing with is BPH um, before we start treatment. Okay, so, so what is the testing? Is it a simple blood test or is there something more complicated involved? So there's typically two ways um, where we can assess the size of the prostate. Uh, one is the... One is a blood test, the PSA, which mm-hmm. um, is routinely done in men as, as we get older. The other one is the digital rectal exam, yep. so where the 
basically the doctor tries to feel the prostate, see if, you know, there's lumps on it. So we're looking at the texture and the size in that case. And that can help us understand what's happening. And then, of course, if, if things are concerning, then we could advance to a biopsy where we actually look under a microscope to see, are these cells still normal? Is this BPH? Or are we looking at cancer cells now? Um, so, you know, it, it definitely needs a workup to be able to understand which condition uh, is occurring. It's interesting you mentioned the digital test because uh, my understanding is a lot of doctors are moving away from doing routine digital examinations for the prostate. Um, You're 100% correct again. The, basically, the PSA is the preferred test. You know, it's, it's less uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and so often we'll do routine PSA, which gives us an idea of the total size of the prostate. And then if that PSA becomes concerning, then that's when we'll start uh, doing more testing, including the digital rectal exam. Okay, so now we've covered you know, what the prostate is, what it does, and what can happen if things go wrong, and how we find that out. What can we do? Is, is there a natural way to, to stop the prostate from getting bigger? Is there anything we can do? For sure. Nutrition is really important uh, for overall health, but also for the prostate. Uh, and it's also important when it comes to managing BPH. And there's specific foods that uh, men can include in their diet to try to prevent or mitigate the issue. Uh, one of the ones that's very clear is that decreasing saturated fat and having more uh, fruits, vegetables, healthy fat, that can really help. More antioxidants uh, from things like tomatoes and berries or uh, fish oil, omega-3 fatty acids um, can also be very, very useful. And of course, there are supplements that have been proven to work. So why don't we go through some of the supplements that actually can help impact prostate health? For sure. There's many science-driven nutrients that have been studied with good research, which show that they can have a very positive impact on the prostate and reduce the symptoms associated with BPH. So, so what, are, what are some of those? Um, salt palmetto is one that uh, most people are familiar with. Uh, the extract, it's an extract from a berry, from a dwarf palm tree, and lots of research there. So more than 35 human trials with uh, salt palmetto for BPH. And um, what we know is that the fatty acids, the fat within those salt palmetto berries, um, lead to improvements in urinary tract symptoms in several ways. They act both on hormones, but also reduce inflammation. And what the research shows is that the benefit of using uh, some of those supplements will often rival the benefits of prescription drugs for the treatment of BPH. Okay, so, you know, I'm familiar uh, with saw palmetto, but I know that there are others that might help as well. So beyond saw palmetto, what else helps? Another one that um, has lots of research is, is called rye pollen, uh, rye flower pollen. Uh, and so it's another one of those nutrients that, you know, when I'm looking at a formula for patients that are trying to manage BPH, it's one of the ingredients I look for. Uh, there's research there that has been done with 144 men with BPH that receive natural products, including this rye flower pollen. And uh, results show decrease in both uh, frequency of urination at night and during the day. 
there's others as well. Another one that um, I often look for is, is plant sterols, and we know that those fats from plants will have therapeutic value, uh, largely due to their anti-inflammatory properties. And we know that chronic inflammation plays a role in the development and progression of prostate problems, including BPH, but also cancer. Um, We also know that they can influence hormones, particularly the balance of androgens, so male hormones like testosterone in the body. Uh, disruptions in that androgen balance contributes to the growth of prostate tissue and so will often make make things worse. Um, Other important antioxidants, uh, so lycopene and selenium, we have studies there when uh, when we combine those ingredients with things like saw palmetto, there's further improvements in terms of symptoms. So urinary flow is better. There's also less inflammation um, in patients with BPH. It's, it's very important to look at the product you're getting. There's different products on the market. Um, so I always tell patients to be careful in terms of the product they're getting. Make sure you're getting a high-quality product. We want extracted ingredients, so the extract um, and the potency is very important. And we want to source uh, specific plant components. And um, often I'll tell patients, um, you know, one of the things, one of the supplements that I really like is the New Roots Herbal Prostate Perform. Mm -hmm. And uh, lots of my patients have had significant improvements in their symptoms. Uh, It's a New Roots product, and um, they do testing in a lab, an ISO 17025 accredited lab, to make sure that what's written on the bottle is what's in the product. Um, so yeah, there, there's lots of options out there, but uh, certainly there's good natural options for those patients. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. That was Dr. Ludo Brunel, ND. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss breast cancer prevention on The Tonic. OMTO is back. OMTO is a yogic celebration of the winter solstice, a full day of specially curated and themed yoga classes led by the most dynamic and popular instructors from the top studios in Toronto. Hundreds of yogis from across the GTA will come to partake in this one-of-a-kind yoga experience and practice in unique themed classes, nourishing your body and mind at a time of year when we need it the most. Guests can reserve their space online in advance. There'll be music, contests, free giveaways, and special offers for all. A portion of the proceeds from ticket sales will go to the Scott Mission. OMTO, December 17th. Save the date! Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Katrina Fo is a board-certified holistic nutritionist who knows that when we look at health, we should be looking at the body as a whole. After overcoming her own cancer 100% naturally and driven by her core belief that the body can heal itself, Katrina went on to become board-certified in holistic nutrition and trained to read functional labs. As a faculty member at Restorative Wellness Solutions, Katrina teaches practitioners to interpret functional labs and design individualized protocols. In her international bestseller, Nutritional Pilates, Katrina offers a framework for whole body health that casts the light on potential obstacles that can obstruct well-being while providing proven strategies to sidestep chronic disease. Welcome to the show, Katrina. How are you? Hi, great to be here. Thanks. 
So, what do our listeners need to know or do in order to help prevent cancer? Oh, that's a, a really fantastic question, especially since it seems like everyone we know is getting cancer nowadays. It really comes down to reducing the carb load so that you can switch your metabolism and become more metabolically flexible. That's the key foundation because we know from Otto Warburg's Nobel-winning work back in 1930s that the functional definition of a cancer cell is that its metabolism is broken. So by starving it of its food source, high blood sugar, um, and getting ketones therapeutically, we can actually do a huge amount of work in terms of feeding the good healthy cells, but not feeding the cancer cells. So to uh, to understand you correctly, you're advocating for ketosis? Uh, Uh, Yes. Okay. And are, are you on the keto diet right now? I am. Yes. Thank you for asking. So, I've been on a ketogenic diet um, both during when I was cancering as well as afterwards because I've just noticed a tremendous reduction in inflammation, brain health function, and, you know, obviously keeping things cancer at bay. So um, I need to understand this a bit better. So with ketosis, uh, you're eliminating certain foods uh, from intake and emphasizing others. Are you saying that cancer cannot feed on the food intake that is sort of meat, fat, and vegetable-driven? Not as much, no. Now, because of the nature of our blood sugar, our body keeps our our blood sugar in our blood at a very stable place. It wants it to be between like 70 and 90 at all times, and it has a lot of control mechanisms to keep it that way. The problem comes when we eat a typical American meal, you know, there's going to be a huge amount of food, carbohydrates, whether that's a, quote, healthy whole grain piece of bread or, you know, cotton candy. It all turns into glucose through our digestive system and therefore elevates our blood sugar. And when that happens, you know, instead of being in that 70 to 90 range, our blood sugar goes up to 100, 200, 300. People go really high. And then we have to have insulin released to pull it back down. And that insulin is very hard on the body and prevents ketones from being made. So overall, keeping the blood sugar in its tightly regulated 70 to 90 range allows us to not give those cancer cells extra fuel because the the cancer cells are metabolically broken so that they're not using oxygen. And when that happens, they need a ridiculous amount more of glucose to the end that they actually start producing more blood vessels so that they can have more blood supply to get more glucose so that the the tumors can actually grow and expand the way they'd like to. So if we just shortchange some of their, you know, fuel mechanisms, it, it greatly helps the process to not drive their growth. Okay, so when, when, when we're talking about the ketogenic diet to help prevent cancer, are you speaking about your own personal experience, or are there studies that you're relying on with this theory? Oh, absolutely. So um, I am talking about from my own experience. I'm talking about from the experience with my clients and um, colleagues' experience, as well as research. Um, Dom D'Agostino has a lot of great research out there. There's lots of um, published things showing um, Thomas Siegfried has a lot of research on this. 
um, showing that this is actually very helpful and therapeutic with cancer. And what other lifestyle changes would you need in order to support this route? In other words, if you've decided that you wanted to uh, apply the ketogenic diet to help prevent cancer, what else would you do? Absolutely. I'm so glad you asked this because a lot of times when people start to hear this, they just start to take some carbs out and they may or may not actually get ketosis. But then beyond that, it's not one thing. And that's the big takeaway that I want people to have. When we're looking at cancer, there's 10 areas that are supported by research where things get off and that will drive cancer. So things like toxins, that's one of the the areas of the root cause drivers. You know, if people have high levels of mold, that's a known carcinogen that will drive cancer. Um, The metabolism is one piece of it, and that's where the ketogenic diet would fall in. So you want to look at all 10 areas because when something like cancer is allowed to proliferate, there's usually like six or eight of these areas that are massively off. And you need to address all of them if you're going to start to turn things around, not just one. And the biggest mistake that I see people making when they want to do something more natural is they're just guessing. They're, you know, hearing something here or there on the radio or, you know, on a blog and they're trying it out, but it may not be the area that's off for them, and it may not be all the things that are off for them. And, you know, cancer is aggressive a lot of times, and even if it's not, it's a serious condition showing that there's things off in your body and you want to get all the smoking guns on the table at once, I, I like to say. Okay, so you mentioned a few of these drivers. What are the others of the 10 that you haven't mentioned? Yeah, so... I mentioned the toxins and the metabolism, Yep. Um, the hormones, so sex hormones as well as thyroid hormones can be off and drive cancer um, with the microbiome. That's not only the gut bacteria and possibly having pathogens overgrowing, um, but also the digestive functions. You don't digest your expensive nutrients in food um, and your clean keto, that it's not going to be very helpful to get the nutrients that your body needs. Uh, stress is one. Stress, meaning um, your circadian rhythms, so those adrenal hormones and your sleep cycle are going to be in good indicators going on there. Inflammation, this is going to be a huge area that we can also use to monitor if things start to go sideways and, and metastasize and such. Um, but there's a lot of key markers there to see how on fire your body is, so to speak. Um, the immune system. Now, this is the system that should be, it's designed to actually monitor the circulating tumor cells of cancer that are in all of our bodies or most all of our bodies at any given point, it should be taking care of those. And when this gets overwhelmed, that's when things go sideways. So we want to really make sure that any autoimmune is calmed down as well as the immune system is very strong and robust. Um, We also have the uh, terrain of the mental and emotional. And this is a big deal that is usually overlooked. And people will tend to kind of brush it under the carpet and ignore it. And I just want to say this is a huge mistake. This is a big problem. Um, And usually with cancer, there's some kind of deep trauma that has hurt the cancer client's heart in the year prior. So sometimes they know it, sometimes they don't, but it needs to be addressed. Um, I mentioned briefly angiogenesis, which is the formation of new blood vessels to then bring more sugar to cancer cells. That's a terrain driver, um, you know, so if there's 
things like copper that are, you know, encouraging more of the blood vessel formation. We can see that on tests. And then last but not least is epigenetics. So most people, you know, we've grown up with this idea that cancer is genetic and it's just chance. And only less than 10% of cancers are inherited genetic mutation driven. So this means that the field of epigenetics, where our diet and lifestyle can actually turn on and off these genes, is way more powerful than the genes themselves. And so knowing what your specific epigenetic, like, drivers can be, like, where do you need to focus on? What genetic variants do you have that you can do something epigenetically to shift it can be super powerful. Were you on the ketogenic diet when you had cancer yourself? At different parts of it. Unfortunately, I wasn't introduced to it until further into my journey, Mm -hmm. but yes. And I'm curious now, are you keto 24-7, or do you do it in a, in a cycle formation? Ooh, good question. That comes up a lot. So I was ketogenic 24-7 for many years. Um, now, um, being intermission, I cycle in and out. So I, I purposely go out because I want to keep metabolic flexibility. I don't want to get to where it's, I can't eat carbs and I'm oversensitive to them. Okay, so we have time for one last question. I understand that you have an offer for our listeners today. Yes, yes. So I have a free ebook, um, the roadmap to prevent cancer recurrence. That I would be happy to give your listeners. That goes into a lot of this in much more depth than we could do in this short time. So, yeah. How do, how do they access that? Oh, yes. So I can just drop the link to you. Um, and uh, let's see, offhand, it is cancerfreedom.com backslash roadmap dash opt-in. Fantastic. We're, we're also going to have the link uh, on the show notes for the show. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. It was a, a pleasure. That was Katrina Foe. While I appreciate Katrina coming on the show today, I want to make sure that everybody who's listening to the show understands before you attempt to try and prevent or treat cancer through lifestyle, you have a a very long and detailed discussion with your health practitioner to make sure it makes sense for you and that they're on board with your intent. We have to take a short break, uh, but when we return, we'll discuss new research into heart health on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Andreas Kumar is a cardiologist and associate professor of medicine at Northern Ontario School of Medicine University. He's an expert in cardiac magnetic resonance imaging and the president of the Canadian Society of Cardiovascular MRI. He's an attending cardiologist and the past chief of cardiology at Health Sciences North in Sudbury. 
Dr. Kumar's research has been focused on heart attacks. He developed an imaging technique for hemorrhagic myocardial infarction, and together with an international team, his research has yielded important insight into the disease mechanisms associated with heart attacks. Dr. Kumar was supported by research grants from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and the Northern Ontario Academic Medicine Association. He was previously awarded the prestigious Banting and Best Award of the Canadian Institute of Health Research. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? Thank you very much, Jamie, for having me. It's a privilege to be here. So for those who don't know, what is an acute myocardial infarction? An acute myocardial infarction is really the professional term for a heart attack. So what happens is that the heart muscle is pumping away blood, which is the job that it has to do. And in order to do so, there's blood vessels going around the heart that provide oxygen and nutrients to the heart muscle. If one of these heart vessels blocks up suddenly, then there's a lack of oxygen and the heart muscle will subsequently suffer a major injury. We call it commonly a heart attack. The medical term is an acute myocardial infarction. Which is, for our purposes, we're going to call it an MI, okay? That's fine. That's great. We do that too. You do that too, so I'm on board. So how are MIs categorized currently? The first thing I just want to mention is that this is one of the most important diseases that affects our society because it's the most important cause for sudden premature death and it causes just a suffering and a loss of our patients that cannot easily be measured. So the way we diagnose and we categorize these patients when they come in currently is based on clinical parameters. So we see them, we get the history and the physical exam, and then we do some very basic tests like an electrocardiogram, which is a test where we attach electrical leads to the chest, wires that give us an electrical recording of the heart muscle activity, and we get a blood test where we can measure enzymes that go up specifically in the setting of a heart attack. Okay, and what is the CCS classification of acute myocardial infarction? It's a new classification that I developed together with a national expert panel, and CCS is the Canadian Cardiovascular Society. So what we did here is what I believe is a game changer in acute heart attacks. We are moving forward from the clinical assessment of patients with heart attacks And we are proposing with this classification, which is endorsed by the Canadian Cardiovascular Society, that tissue changes that we can observe with medical imaging methods should be incorporated into the assessment of patients with acute heart attacks. What this will give us is a much more refined assessment of heart attacks, which can have multiple consequences. The the first and foremost consequence of this new classification of heart attacks is that it will allow us to get a much more granular detail in the assessment of our patients, a much more differentiated view. We will be able to assess the severity of the heart attack, and this will give us an idea of how well or perhaps how badly the patient may do in the future. So is, is this sort of like a triage protocol, an emergency to determine like what sort of treatments should be advocated in, in the circumstances? Is, is that what you're talking about? So, so what, we're, what we're talking about here is that, let me go back one step here as how we have been doing things in the past and how we're currently doing. Sure. First of all, the tools that we have are very, very good. So we can diagnose a heart attack with very good sensitivity with a blood marker. 
the ECG that we can get within minutes will give us a very basic idea of the risk of the patient. There's a sign on the ECG, which we call a T elevation, which immediately highlights a very, very high risk, and it will determine how the patient um, will do, and it will determine how the patient needs to be treated. Now, we've been using these tools, and they, they have been assessed and validated for years, and they're very, very good, very powerful. What we're suggesting with the new classification is that in the acute phase, when the patient is hospitalized, if we add imaging parameters from echocardiography, from cardiac catheterization, from MRI, to the assessment of our patients, then we will actually be able to see what exactly is happening at the level of the heart muscle. There's different types of injury. The stage four, the four stages of classification that the Canadian Cardiovascular Society is proposing are as follows. At the very beginning, there's actually a thing called aborted myocardial infarction. In this situation, if the patient gets treated immediately and the treatment is successful, the patient will actually walk away with no major damage at all. And two, three months out, the patient may have a completely normal heart function. The second stage of this classification is death of the heart muscle cells. So that patient will actually develop a scar. And then there's stage three and stage four. At stage three and stage four, the small vessels that bring blood to every single little heart muscle cell, those vessels get affected. Mm. And we know when these vessels get affected, the patient's chance to get out of this is much worse. The complication rate goes up exponentially. At stage four, you have a burst of the vessels and there's a bleed in the heart muscle, which we call hemorrhagic myocardial infarction. Hemorrhage is the professional term for bleeding. A hemorrhagic myocardial infarction, which is the worst case, the worst scenario that you can have in an acute heart attack. So this knowledge has been out there vaguely for, for years, but we condensed it down into a classification. We pro- we're providing our healthcare professional colleagues with a tool that they can apply in the acute setting. And there's going, there's going to be a number of consequences from that. The first consequence is that we now have a tool that will allow us for a more precise risk assessment. You may have two patients on the intensive care unit that you're looking after, both have a heart attack. They both look fairly similar, similar blood markers, similar ECG changes. But the moment that you start looking at the tissue, you may find that they're actually profoundly different. One may have an aborted infarction with really not much um, irreversible injury at all, a patient who will very, very likely recover and do great. And the other patient in the next room may have a hemorrhagic myocardial infarction. And if we know that and we incorporate this into our scoring system, then we know that this patient actually has a risk of sadly not doing very well. So the just understanding the risk is very fundamental for day-to-day clinical care. We need to know roughly where we're going with our patients. So this is the first impact that this tool will have. Doctor, I have a question yes. for you. When somebody comes into emergency and, and the diagnosis may be a heart attack, is it currently protocol to get them an MRI right away or, or not? No. An MRI is a little difficult to get in an acute phase. We right. can certainly do it if we have to, but uh, the immediate diagnosis does not rely on an MRI. The immediate diagnosis relies on the history and physical exam, the blood markers, and the ECG. And this is sufficient. This will not change. Um, The immediate therapy is not changing. What is changing with the new classification is that once therapy has been provided and the patient is being treated and they're still at the hospital, we can get more information about these patients to predict the outcome in the future. 
And I, and I presume it helps with the outcomes as well. Is that true or, or not as much? So we are, we are opening a new perspective on heart attacks with this classification. By the fundamental information that we're providing is that not all heart attacks are the same. Right. And if we, incorpor- if we incorporate and we start incorporating these four stages that the Canadian Cardiovascular Society is proposing, then we may in the future be able to develop therapies that target patients in a more differentiated manner. So yeah. a patient with a stage four heart attack may need a completely different therapy from somebody who has a stage one or a stage two. But this will all, all these doors are open now. With the classification, all of these doors to investigate further and see what this actually means are open now. And we believe that the therapy has to be profoundly different based on the stage of heart attack that the patient has experienced. Now, this research still has to be done because the classification wasn't out there. We didn't, we didn't know that. We know that these patients will do worse. And we know when you look at the tissue that the type of heart attack is completely different when you look at a stage four, stage three, stage two, stage one. When you look at it under the microscope, there's a, a completely different set of tissue changes, tissue injury that has occurred. And it's, it's very plausible to believe that the hypothetical best treatment may have to take this into account. But we are not quite there yet. But what we have done is we have opened these doors. We have provided a new view, a new perspective on acute heart attacks in these four stages. And we're hoping that this will open the doors for future individualized therapy, a therapy that will then improve to take into account what exactly happened at the level of the tissue. And this way we will be able to improve care for our patients in the future. That makes sense. And, and it, it occurs to me it's also an issue of sort of resource management, right? If you can identify those who need particular types of treatment, you're making sure that the right patients are getting the right treatment. Is, is that what that you're is, aiming for? That is exactly what we're aiming for. That's exactly what we're aiming for. So we believe that the best treatment for a stage four myocardial infarction may be different for a stage one myocardial infarction. So the small vessels once they get affected, we know that these patients, unfortunately, do not do very well. And we have, we've been struggling with this. There has been research into this, trying to improve blood flow. But all of this research never translated into an improvement in patient survival. But now laying this all out in a very clear stage, fourth stage classification, stage one, two, three, four, I think this will open avenues for research to improve the care that we're providing for our patients with heart attacks. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. That was Dr. Andreas Kumar. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is celebrating 40 years in business. Prioritizing organic, local, non-GMO, fair trade, and sustainable practice, celebrate with them on November 18th at the Danforth Community Market. There's gifts with every purchase, complimentary carrot cake, and apple cider. The Big Carrot. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. 
Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. My next guest, Lane, is a powerful fundraiser and gender equality edutainer who is committed to creating a more inclusive culture through storytelling, relatability, and humor. For over 12 years, Lane has been a powerful voice for change through their work as the auctionista, raising over $40 million for charity. Today, Lane talks about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and belonging through captivating keynotes and workshops. And for more information, you can always visit www.auctionista.ca. Welcome to the show, Lane. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. How are you doing today? Good. So I'm, a, I'm a, in addition to hosting a talk show, I'm a, I'm a publisher and I deal with words all the time. So why do we focus on pronouns? Can you help the audience understand what that means? Well, grammatically, pronouns refer to people and they are gender, right? So when we use pronouns, we have the opportunity to affirm someone's gender identity. So everyone has pronouns that affirm their identity. It's not just two SLGBTQ plus people, right? Yeah. And what we have to remember is that, Jamie, there is no relationship between a person's anatomy and the pronouns they use. So what I say is pronouns are self-ascribed, and therefore they are a matter of choice rather than assignment. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a concept based on how a person identifies. Okay. So if that's true, how can using pronouns be more inclusive? Well, people's pronouns relate to their gender identity. So, for example, uh, someone who identifies as a woman may use the pronoun she, her. Someone who identifies as a man might use the pronouns he, him. But we don't want to assume somebody's gender identity based on their gender expression. So what does that mean? So when you look at somebody based on, you know, their clothing, their hairstyle, their mannerisms, you cannot assume their gender identity. So when we provide an opportunity for people to share their pronouns, you're showing that you're not assuming what their gender identity is based on their appearance. So I always say, Jamie, that now we are in a time in our societal evolution where phrases such as, hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, that's, it's really no longer considered welcoming language for all. Okay. So, you know, this is sort of a generational thing. And for a lot of people, they may not be familiar with what we're talking about, or it may not come naturally to them. So if it doesn't come naturally to you, but you want to participate, how, do you, how, do, how, do you, how does one get started? Well, I think like everything, we have to start with ourselves, Jamie. Um, we have to normalize the use of our own pronouns and get accustomed and comfortable to doing that. So that could be when you introduce yourself. Hey, my name is Lane. My pronouns are they, them. It could also be, you know, ensuring that your pronouns are on your social media accounts. The other thing that we can do is really start thinking about gender neutral language. Mm-hmm. So that means something like instead of using the word stewardess, we are shifting that to a neutral term and using the word flight attendant. Right. Fireman is now firefighter. Husband and wife, it's, it's using the words partner and spouse. And I think also we've got to educate ourselves 
on learning what inclusive behavior is. And the one thing that I really want to focus on is practicing empathy. You know, empathy doesn't mean that you've experienced exactly what someone else has experienced, but it's more about understanding and acknowledging their feelings in that context. Now, you know, empathy does require a little practice, but it also means becoming comfortable with the discomfort of uncomfortable situations. I will repeat that. Becoming comfortable. Sometimes people say, can you just say that again? Becoming comfortable with the discomfort of uncomfortable situations. Okay, so like I'm I'm known as a character who who kind of revels in that, so I I get that, but not everybody's like that. I, so I, I guess it's like a learning process for everybody, then, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, it is, and that that's where you know we go back to you know educate yourself. You know, we've got the internet at our fingertips, and there is so much excellent information and resources available to educate yourself. If I'm with somebody who's non-binary, how can I yeah. correctly use the pronouns when speaking to them? Like what would be what would be an appropriate way of engaging in that conversation? First of all, we cannot assume anyone's pro- pronouns. So right. even even for me, you know, um, people will physically look at me, see the way that my appearance is, and they still can't assume what my pronouns are. So we've got to ask. I mean, that's the number one thing is say, hey, Lane, what are your pronouns? And that establishes it right off the bat immediately. And there's nothing wrong with that. A lot of us are very accustomed to that. You know, we've been we've been, you know, at conferences where name tags have pronouns, Um, you know, in meetings, people are opening up their presentations and, you know, introducing themselves with their pronouns. So for many of us, this is very normal. Um, and it's, it's about making sure that you are using correct pronouns. And that means asking. How do you feel when somebody uses your pronouns correctly? What's, <laughs> the, what's the impact? Yeah, well, that's a kind of a weird question. Um, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to answer it in two parts. I feel validated. I feel appreciated that somebody's respecting and understands and uses my correct pronouns. It's also very normal for me because my family, my friends, my coworkers, my business partners have, you know, they've been using the correct pronouns for a long time. But sure. it's such an odd question, Jamie, because it's like somebody saying to you, how does it feel when somebody uses your correct pronouns? Well, I take it for granted, right? Right. You take it for granted, right? And, um, you know, I'm, I would like to have that be the case for sure. me. In some instances, it feels very normal, but when it's misused... You know, that feeling of being misgendered, it's very difficult. And especially, you know, it can be very uncomfortable and triggering in a workplace. You know, I'm a public performer. That can also, um, you know, it it affects me. We're human beings. And, you know, we all want to feel respected and included and belong, right? Sure. So how can we avoid uh, those uncomfortable conversations? And, you know, assuming that my listeners are empathetic people who, who don't want to sort of create an uncomfortable situation, what sort of advice would you give to somebody? Yeah. Well, you know, here's the thing. We're all human. We all make mistakes. And it's okay to make mistakes. I've made mistakes many times in my life, and I have used the wrong pronouns as well. But the key is, is to kind of step back and process that situation, learn from your mistakes, 
and do better the next time. And it's okay to say that to somebody. Hey, Lane, I made a mistake with your pronouns. I'm going to do better next time, you know. And I understand that people are, as you say, some. this is not normal for for some folks. For some, it's Maybe yeah. not in their sphere and you know it will take some adjusting and and understanding so i think that's the number one thing is that we have to be somewhat easy on ourselves you know those of us who are you know perhaps you know not having the right pronouns used and those of us who are not using the right right pronouns so you know the bottom line is you know we don't have to understand what it means for someone to be non-binary to respect them Right. Of course. I mean, there have been folks, there are folks probably out there right now that don't truly understand what the non-binary means. But that doesn't mean that, you know, we still don't have respect coming our way and that we deserve it. So we can't make assumptions about people's gender just by looking at them by their wear what they're wearing how their hair is whether they might appear feminine masculine or or whatever right mm-hmm. but as i say if you're not sure what someone's pronouns are you just have to ask you know the other thing i say and if you can't remember baby think of destiny's child and say my name say my name <laughs> just say lane lane baby what's going on can't right? go can't go wrong with somebody's name right exactly exactly so i understand you have a workshop on diversity equity inclusion and belonging that's coming up in january you want to tell us a little bit about that yeah we are super super excited about that you know i truly believe that we should all have an understanding around gender identity and how to build an inclusive workplace and i think as humans we know intuitively that diversity matters but in addition there are three primary reasons why we need this kind of training first of all a legal reason Second of all, a productivity reason. And thirdly, you know, a human reason. Um, when we talk about the legal reason, you know, in 2017, Bill 16 was passed, um, which amended the Canadian Human Rights Code to include gender identity and gender expression as protected rights. That's the legal reason. Um, study after study has shown that diverse workforce um, that is inclusive results in more engaged employees, higher productivity, greater innovation, more connected team, and more retention. And the bottom line is that, you know, understanding gender identity and expression and building an inclusive and empathetic workplace is the right thing to do. You know, we're all human and we're all deserving of the respect. So um, it's, it's hard. It's messy. (laughs) It can be a little uncomfortable, but it's going to be well worth it because what we're bringing to work teams is fun, interaction. It's real. It's impactful. And I'm also going to be including my own personal motivational moments that are going to give some real life context to the learning as well. So we're, we're very, very excited about this. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been a great time. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Ludo Burnell, ND, Katrina Foe, Dr. Andreas Kumar, and Lane. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. 
The fall issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Bussin wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.